Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. 150 chapters on the end times, session 16. This is uh, 2 Peter 3. And uh, we're going to read 2 Peter 3 here in just a moment. Um, But uh, before we do, I I just want to point out there are some uh, unique insights uh, in this chapter that are not uh, are not clear in a concise way uh, anywhere else that I'm aware of. Now you might come back to me in a few weeks ago. There's this passage in Isaiah. Okay, I, I'd want to hear it. Um, but there's a lot of clarity here in Second Peter chapter three that's kind of line upon line in a way that gives details that makes it unique uh, to the subject matter that it's covering. And, uh, and what, what we're actually going to be covering um, is this is mostly about kind of the, the, the package. And there's some things talked about it beforehand, a little bit after, but the kind of the focus that all of this is, uh, is in, encased in is Peter instructing about what happens after the 1,000-year reign of Jesus. What happens to the planet? And there are some profound things that occur. I mean, this is pretty deep end-time teaching, if you ask me. This is not surface level. This is pretty, I mean, you're, you're projecting out not just into the end-time drama, but then a thousand years after that is what, is what this is really focused on. All right, so uh, let's read. This is uh, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 14. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you into wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since Our ancestors died. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. These waters, also the world of that time, was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You ought Uh, That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. 
But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and be at peace with him. Okay, so we're going to look at this. If I could get a little bit of help in the sound booth on the lighting. Bring, bring the lights up just a little bit. Um, still difficult to read here. Yeah, thank you. That's better. Okay, um, so we're going to break this down now. We're going to look at what is it that we're seeing here uh, in this letter that, Paul, uh, that Peter's writing. He makes a point to say it's the second letter that he's writing. And so uh, I, it's kind of the, the general direction that Paul is, or Peter, I'm sorry, that Peter is uh, making in this kind of appeal is he's more or less saying don't get off course. Say, look, there's a lot of things that are coming. There's a lot of really intense things. Don't get off course and don't let anyone get you off course is kind of a, uh, as an encouragement, okay? So uh, I want to read just one verse that I think uh, falls very much in line with what we're about to read. I want to read one verse out of 1 Peter. So we're studying 2 Peter 3, but I want to read one verse out of 1 Peter because Peter in that first letter did something similarly uh, as he was trying to encourage uh, his audience uh, that first round, okay? So let's top of page two, if you're in the notes, and it's 1 Peter 4, 7, and it says this. This is Peter again, or rather the first round, this is Peter, same voice. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So again, that's Peter saying, look, in light of what's coming, we need to be sober-minded. We need to be paying attention. We need to be engaged in the storyline. We need to be prayerful. <coughs> He's saying there's some things that we need to be doing and a response that's required for the generation that's going to see the Lord's return. And so I just think that that's a, a fitting pairing verse uh, from 1 Peter with this letter, uh, and this, uh, specifically this chapter in 2 Peter 3. Okay, so letter A here, uh, if you're at the top of page 2. Uh, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. So I just read you a verse from letter 1. This is my second letter, and I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. It's interesting because then Peter goes on, every word that he says after that for the next you know, 14 verses, it's all end times. It's interesting that Peter says, I'm writing to you to stimulate your minds into wholesome thinking. So here's a bunch of eschatology. Think about that. Think about what's being communicated in that from the Lord's perspective. As this apostle is now uh, unpacking end time theology as a way to stimulate your mind to wholesome living, thinking, actions, responses. He goes, I know what has a powerful grip on the human heart to motivate a believer, eschatology. One of the things that we've found over the course of the last, I don't know, 16 or 17 years that we've been teaching near weekly on end times, it has caused us to care greatly about our character, about what's coming, about our hearts, about responsiveness. It's caused us to want to go deeper in the Lord. 
I don't feel in any way that it's caused us to get distracted and become weird and care about charts and things. It's caused us to actually go deeper in our relationship with Christ. But that's what Peter said was going to happen. And so it's part of why we're doing this really long series on these chapters. I want us to look at this stuff and get a right perspective. Because I think it's pretty easy to have a wrong perspective because I think we hear the wrong perspective reiterated around us all the time in many ways. A murmuring friend, uh, a, a dismissing you know, voice uh, you know, in, in leadership in, in some church somewhere, a preacher that's, that's downgrading the importance of the end times. Or, I mean, just, there's just a lot of ways that we can wind up getting some wrong perspective. But when we look at these chapters, one after another, and these verses, and we see things like, Peter making a case for, I actually am one of trying to help you make you live godly. My objective is to help you live godly. Okay, Peter, what do you got? Teach us the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, there's a place for that, but I actually want to teach you on the second coming and the time frame after that. Because if I can get your head rooted in eternity, you might believe this story is real. You know, part of the reason that a believer struggles to pursue the things of God is there's this subtle question in the heart, is God even really real? Is the story even really real? Did Jesus really even come? And the more that we understand the whole story, not just his first coming, but the more that we understand his first coming was unto his second coming, unto a literal thousand-year reign on the earth where Jesus is the king over all the kings of the earth, on the earth. The more that we enter into the narrative, the more the whole Bible becomes believable to us. The more that we see scripture and go, this is real, it's the word of God, it actually has weight and it, it has merit in my life. And so teaching on eschatology, because it is the craziest, biggest story, and it's not a myth. It is the future. And it was always God's intent. By looking at those things, Peter understands if you can anchor your heart in eternity, and anchor your heart in the big picture plan of God, it makes a lot more sense why we should be like working on the fruit of the Spirit today. And so this is uh, Peter's hope, and, and I mean, it's not a hope. He believes it, like, fully. He's all in. I really like what he says next. Second verse. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's saying, if you will, I want you to believe the Bible. The words of the prophets. He's not only referring to the prophets like the books of the prophets. He is absolutely referring to that. But not only, because Moses wasn't in that. Moses didn't get included in that. You know, the, the prophet Samuel wasn't included in the major, major and the minor prophets. So when he's saying the prophets, it's the testimony of the prophets throughout Scripture. And then he says the testimony or the commands, the words of Jesus, call that the Gospels. And then he says the things that you've then heard through the apostles, call that the epistles. He's talking about the Bible. This is one of the verses, by the way, that was put into place that helped the early church canonize the books of the Bible. Like they're looking at this verse and others to go, what, do we, sh what should we be looking at in order to make a Bible the Bible? And what makes it and what doesn't make the cut? And, 
And so here we have the Bible now, because we're now on this side of it. And so in, in essence, Peter's going, I really want you to make your focus the Bible's teachings, the teachings that you can count on. I want you to put stock in that, not in internet prophecies, not in, you know, whatever the, the new craze or the new, you know, doomsday prepper thought process is. All of that stuff could maybe be intriguing, but you should not give yourself over to that. You want to be rooted in the Bible. If you're rooted in the Bible, you have tremendous insight to be able to discern the myths and the teachings and the this is and the conspiracies. You will have tremendous understanding. And so Peter here is saying, I want you to recall the words that have been spoken by the reliable witnesses from God for you to understand. Not just the Bible. He, this whole passage is about the end times. So this is Peter saying, I want you to be in alignment with what the Bible teaches about the end times. I want you to understand what the, what the, uh, the witnesses of history and of that hour that were firsthand witnesses to Christ, what they communicate about the end times, I want you to know these things. And as he says that, he makes this really big statement. You know, the Lord allows the apostles' words to get captured and written and become doctrine for us. Think about what it means when Peter is in the middle of an exhortation about the end times for him to say, above all. Above all, you must understand. Now, that's... We'll look at what we're supposed to understand in a minute. But for a starting point, this is a non-negotiable. This is Peter writing to, at that time, an audience that looked like however many congregations that this letter was going to make it around to. In our hour now, we understand it was always God's intention. Follow me on this logic and make sure, like, check to see if you believe what I'm about to say. And if you don't, go on a journey to try to figure out where you stand. It was always God's intention that the guys that were around in the New Testament hour in, in that time frame, the first century church, would write stuff down to preserve Christianity for thousands of years. It was always God's intention. How would we even know what Christianity is if it didn't get written down and was able to make it through the generations? We'd all have different versions and different myths and different stories. And, and well, I heard that Jesus said this. And I, I, I heard that there were guys in the first century that they thought this was, and we, would be, we would be so off course. It was God's intention that this stuff would get written down and make it to 2024 so we could have a compass. That was always the plan. So when, when the word says, above all, you must understand I want to say it to believers in 2024, you can't afford to not understand the end times and some specific details. You've heard me say, probably tired of hearing me say, how many times I've mentioned that when, I, when we think about the end times, to me, the subject that stands out the greatest is the subject of deception. That is the subject that I think needs to be of the greatest importance. One of the reasons that I think that is this verse. This isn't the only one. 
But it's one of the reasons is it says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, so in the end times, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. It's interesting that these evil desires are not primarily related to, for sure it's included, but not primarily related to living an immoral life. The primary context here is the desire to not believe in the second coming because of how much that frees up a person. So he says, you must understand this. In the last days, there will be people who come and they say, Jesus isn't coming back, or for sure he's not coming back anytime soon. And they will be following their own evil desires because if there is no second coming, then that brings into question the entire Bible. If there is no second coming, it brings into question your faith. It brings into question the the plumb line of truth. If there is no second coming, we have no hope. And so Peter says, you guys got to get this. And he's talking to Christians. Understand, it's important. He's talking to the believing community. It's not, hey, believing community, watch out. There are going to be some lost people that don't care about Jesus. There are going to be some lost people that think Jesus isn't coming because they don't believe in Jesus anyway. That is not what is being communicated. He's saying within the church context, there are going to be scoffers that will scoff at the idea, we don't need to study the end times. Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. People have been saying he's going to come back forever. There will be scoffers, and he says, they're actually following their own evil desires. And Peter says, above all, you must understand this. I look at that and I go, if I believe the Bible at all, this is a problem. This is a jarring statement. Because this is Peter making sure that you and me and everybody else are on the hook. You must understand this point because you're going to need it. Because you're going to face it. Because you're going to be up against trials related to this that will be far greater than what you're thinking. Just even today, and I don't want to go into the details of it, somebody that I respect in the body of Christ, that like, you know, I, I just, I think they're a, they're a good mouthpiece. Somebody that I respect, somebody very close to them made what I would consider to be a very questionable decision, and they endorsed it very loudly. Like, I endorse this questionable decision. I'm totally endorsing it. And I'm looking at that and going, this is going to be like that, only it's going to continue to infiltrate. It's going to continue to get worse to the point where we're not going to have the luxury of going, if they call themselves a believer, they're a real believer. If they go to church, they actually hold to the teachings of Scripture. We're going to wind up in a very muddied environment, very, very muddied. And the challenge of that is going to wind up causing all of us to have to go back to Peter's words, above all, you must understand this. There is going to be brought into significant question and the issue of deception, whether we're living in that hour, whether Jesus is actually going to come back, whether there really is a Jesus to come back. And this, is, this all plays into what it says here, following their own evil desires. So I'm looking at it and going, The church needs the gripping reality with weight on it. Jesus is coming back to the planet, 
and there will be great consequences when he does. We need to be living with that. The next uh, piece, I think I already covered most of it. The next verse is, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the creation. I more or less covered that. But, but I do want to make a couple points on it. They're going to say Jesus isn't coming, and by saying that, what they're doing is they're taking the church's attention off the primary plan for the generation. Think about this. Jesus has been in heaven waiting to come back until it's finally time to come back. And when it's finally time to come back, it's the most exciting thing he can imagine. Jesus is all excited. He wants more than anything for the generation that he comes back to to be ready for his return. That's the reason he said over and over, be ready, don't be deceived when the Son of Man comes. I mean, it's the reason he gave us all the information. But this scoffing spirit is aimed at the church to get the church to not pay attention to the single greatest purpose that God has for that entire generation of humans. Don't pay attention to the most important thing on God's mind. What? And it will be so enticing because end times are kind of intense, because there has been a good long season where Jesus has not come back. Because the desires of the heart are to live however we want, to live unrestrained. And Peter says to the generation that's going to see the second coming, you cannot afford to miss this. You must understand this. You must have it as a gripping reality in your heart because you will miss the purpose of God for the generation you're alive in. Oh my gosh, that's intense. So the end time story, the end time drama, it's filled with twists and turns. The more that we've studied the end times, the more fascinating it is. I mean, I I want my heart to be gripped with that fear of the Lord, but also you read the story, it's like there has yet to be a director in Hollywood that could produce anything a 100th as cool and crazy as this story. This story is crazy and of the most epic of proportions. I think it's also the reason that the human heart, and, and you can see it in the movies that have been produced in Hollywood, that the human heart is is fascinated with the idea of the end of the world. Whether it comes through a comet, tsunamis, a plague, a zombie plague, some version of the apocalypse. Like that's, there is something in the human heart because we're going to experience the transition of the age. It's a real thing. Okay. Well, in the midst of all these twists, here is yet another Really interesting twist. This is where we start to get into what the primary focus of the chapter is about. It's a really interesting twist if it's an idea that you weren't already familiar with. And that is that there is a promised destruction coming where God will purify heaven. What? He'll purify heaven and he'll purify earth with fire. Creating, the purpose of this, is to create an even more perfect union between himself and his creation. That holy fire is going to cleanse heaven and earth. This is a really interesting idea. Again, this is alluded to 
a little bit in the Psalms and, and the major prophets a little bit. I think Isaiah's got a couple verses in there. But when you put these verses together here in 2 Peter 3, it tells a story and it gives a little bit of context. And so, so Peter starts off, part of his warning is how seriously we need to take the end times because God plans to cleanse the world of unrighteousness. And then he deals with this subject and he says, First uh, uh, Peter 3, 5 through 6, they deliberately forget. So this is back to the scoffing. It's an interesting connection here. Peter says they deliberately forget God used his creative cleansing button once already. They deliberately forget God pushed the deluge flood button and the earth was cleansed of unrighteousness through water. He says they deliberately forget. It's an interesting kind of connection here because you just you now fast forward to well in Peter's generation these events didn't occur. We're still waiting for them to. So you now fast forward to the end times and you go, what person that's going to church right now that's going to be one of these scoffers or potentially already is, is deliberately forgetting the flood? Well, what was the flood about? The flood was about God showing his strong arm of justice to deal with unrighteousness in the earth and to do it in such a way that nobody could deny. I mean, there wasn't anybody to deny by the time the thing was over, except the guys on the boat. But, but that no one could deny, like, Lord, you like really went over the top on how much you dealt with this issue of unrighteousness and your willingness to cleanse it. Then you made a pinky promise with a rainbow as, a, as the sign that you'd never do that again. He goes, oh, yeah, I got it. I've got more creative ways to cleanse the earth. He said, I've got yet another way, and it won't be water. It's going to be fire, and it's to do the same thing. Just think about the water and fire of cleansing. That's just, those are two things that cleanse. Like, we, we recognize that in, you know, even in modern days. Like, heat, you warm that sandwich up in the microwave, you can eat it. I mean, you, just, you can warm that thing up, heat it up. Cleanse that thing right out. Water, wash the plate. I mean, it's these two ideas, and God's like, well, I already did the water one. And in the last days, and again, there's the timing is actually after Jesus has been ruling for a thousand years. He says, then I'm going to cleanse the earth, and it's going to get really intense. He treats this very seriously. God did this creative cleansing once before. And he says they deliberately forget that God did this. They deliberately forget how serious God is about unrighteousness and how serious God is about performing his word. Because when he says, I am going to cleanse the earth, he is going to cleanse the earth. I mean, that, that is the word. And, and the scoffing that says, ah, God's not going to do this, isn't just dismissing the second coming. It's dismissing the entire narrative. I mean, all the plans of God. Okay? All right, so <clears throat> what's going on here? One of the things that is a great challenge in this age, and all of us know this at some level, is watching wickedness go unpunished. It just leaves such a bad taste in our mouth. To hear the story of wickedness and there not be punishment, there not be justice, we don't like that. Well, in many different waves, God is going to deal with the issue of injustice. 
And the final wave is after the thousand years, he's going to cleanse the earth with fire. Look at this. 2 Peter 3.7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. It's after the thousand-year reign, after the thousand-year reign, that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. That doesn't happen at the beginning of the thousand years. That happens at the end of the thousand years. The end of the thousand years is actually when the fullness of justice occurs. The fullness of everything being cleansed, the, the fullness of it all occurs after Jesus has been reigning for a thousand years, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Well, just as a little connection point, because I, I wanted to put it in here, thought it was appropriate, I want to read you just a couple of verses out of 1 Peter. So remember, we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. But I want to read you just a couple of verses of 1 Peter, because I think it helps complete the story helps complete the picture, because mostly what we're looking at in 2 Peter chapter 3 is the negative side of the day of the Lord. We're looking at the, the trying points of it and warnings about it. But Peter didn't only speak on that. Look at these verses here in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, and then 1 Peter 5, verse 4, talking about the glories of the second coming. This was a subject that Peter was very well acquainted with. It's just not what he's teaching on in 2 Peter 3. But in 1 Peter 1, it says he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what did that do? Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance, where is it? How does this work? This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. When? How long? How does, how does this work? It's kept in heaven for you until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is Peter talking about the glories of the second coming, the glories of the end time drama. He says in 1 Peter 5, and when the chief shepherd appears, that's the second coming, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So Peter talks in the first uh, book, uh, or uh, first letter, he talks about the glories of the second coming, and now here in the second letter, he's talking about the difficulties related to the end time drama. Not all of them, but one aspect. Again, I said that I think this chapter gives us some unique insights because there's not too many places that you can find details about what happens after the 1,000-year reign of Christ. I mean, it's one verse here, one verse here. You might have more verses here than any place I am aware of uh, outside. Well, I won't go into that. But uh, this, is a, this is a pretty significant uh, chapter related to the events that occur after the 1,000-year reign. All right. Well, let's look now at the details of this cleansing, okay? Uh, first, he says, God's judgment is patient. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Back to the subject of justice. God has a day, and it's not just one day. There's, there's waves of days. There's a, a season of time that we refer to as the day of the Lord, but that day of the Lord is dynamic. The day of the Lord, in some cases, includes the judgment of Satan, after the thousand-year rebellion. I mean, it's, 
That's part of the justice being fulfilled. That's still part of the day of the Lord being manifest, okay? And so in this passage, you know, that we're looking at, we're seeing this, this uh, the, the justice finally brought upon all the wicked. And it happens in significant way through the judgments that are going to come in the Great Tribulation. It happens in a significant way with Jesus judging all of the wicked men and women on the earth as he becomes king. It comes in his righteous laws in the millennium. The earth will look very different, and while there will still be sin, it will be significantly reduced. Those with a resurrected body won't be sinning, but there'll be plenty of people on earth that are being ruled and led, and the reason those laws need to be in place is because they still have a choice. Even his justice in that hour is part of him judging wickedness, but the fullness of justice doesn't occur until after the thousand years is completed. He says, God is not uh, uh, slow in showing his justice. He's patient. He has a plan. He's calculated. He says, actually, top of page four, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. It is, this is a massive part of our hope that God desires weak people. I mean, that is, that is so much. You need to hang your hat on that. The fact that God likes weakies is really good news for you and me. And he desires that none would perish. And so part of the reason that the end times have not happened yet is because of the Lord's patience and desire that everyone would come into repentance, but he doesn't force that reality, he makes invitation. So do you recognize the Great Commission is in connection to why the second coming hasn't happened yet? He desires for that group over there that's never heard the gospel to be brought to repentance. But that group's never heard the gospel because we haven't figured out how to get there yet. Because we've not yet made the plans to get the missionaries over there, to get the Bible translated in that language, that sort of a thought process. God says, I desire that none would perish. And so I'm actually, there's some pieces of my heart and desire that I am unwilling to bring the end times until I've, I've got it in my heart that the world has been able to hear this. So that's the Great Commission. The future cleansing. Let's look at this now because you look at these verses together and it helps paint a story. So this is 2 Peter 3, 7, 3, 10, and 3, 12. <clears throat> By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. Now let me just break down a few pieces of what this passage is saying and what this passage is not saying. One, <clears throat> it's a cleansing fire that will leave things laid bare on the earth. It doesn't destroy the earth and the earth disappears. It's, it purifies and refines and lays the earth bare, okay? Just think about like, I don't know, the best analogy I can think of just at the top of my head is if, you're, if your hair on your arm was singed off and all that's left now is the bare skin, 
that it's kind of gotten down to the foundation. That's what God's going to do in a grand scale of the earth. He's going to burn up everything with this holy fire so that everything is laid bare, the foundation of the earth. Now, it's important that we understand that what's happening here is a radical cleansing like the flood. That's the reason the flood was brought up in the same passage of Scripture. Peter goes, God did water round one. He's going to do fire round two. And really, arguably, he's going to do judgments as round 1.5. <clears throat> you know, all that's going to be going on in, the, in uh, the Great Tribulation period. But he goes, I'm bringing up the water thing because that was God's creative way to cleanse the earth in that hour. He's going to do yet another creative way to cleanse the earth in the, in the last hour. He's going to use fire. You recognize that in the book of Genesis, it says God created and it was good. There is nothing intrinsically bad about planet earth except that which has been done to it by sin. The earth at its reality is good. God does not go, they made this thing so bad we need a new planet E. We just, we got to start over. We got to get a new one. He goes, no, this one must be refined. God has promised he will dwell on this earth with man. So it's not a new earth in the sense of this current earth will disappear and blow up into a million pieces and then God will make a new one. It's like a new creation. When you came to Christ, you became a new creation, but you look the same physically to me. <clears throat> but there's a bit of a glow about you. There's a new reality, the spiritual dynamic. The Holy Spirit lives in you. That was new. That didn't happen before. You're a new creation. God is going to make the earth new. There are too many passages of Scripture, for those of you that are kind of like, I don't know, I kind of think it's a brand new planet. There are too many passages of Scripture where God promises eternal promises to geography. Eternal promises to Jerusalem, to Israel, to certain nations. Eternal. Like, I promise this forever. Well, if the earth goes blowy, kablowy, and it's gone, that God can no longer make good on that promise. He would have to, like, make a new Jerusalem, on the, like a new new one, a new a new Israel, a new this nation. And it, he, he made promises to dirt. That dirt can't go away. That dirt, however, can be refined and cleansed with fire. And that's what's going to happen. Laid bare and refined. <clears throat> I'll just say this. Part of the reason I believe that the earth has no sea after the thousand years is because all the water was burned up in the cleansing when the earth was laid bare during this period of time. It says there will no longer be a sea. Well, what happened to the sea? Well, during the fire of cleansing, just my thoughts, during the fire of cleansing, it's gone. Now, I don't think that means there'll be no more water because we all know well enough to know if you, if you burn up water, you're not really burning up water, it's evaporating. So now you've got a whole lot more water up in the atmosphere. You've now actually got the possibility to do it all over again, like in the beginning when there was no water on the earth and the flood came because all that water was up in the atmosphere because it, had well, it hadn't evaporated, it just started up there. But if the waters are all evaporated because of the cleansing fire, who knows what that does related to atmosphere and everything else, okay? So just some thoughts there. 
Okay. Uh, look at the uh, look at what happens now after all this. Second Peter three thirteen. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is the promise that God says, I will come on the earth and make my dwelling with man, but I can't do it without this holy fire of cleansing. Is there still, there's still residue. You know, it says in heaven that no unevil or uh, no uh, evil or unclean thing will enter heaven. That's because God can't coexist with it. We understand? Well, it's the same way on earth. The problem is, even after Jesus' thousand-year reign on the earth, there will still be things that, G- that God the Father cannot coexist with. There must be holy fire of cleansing. I think a significant thing that's going to happen, even in relationship to this fire of cleansing that's going to cleanse both heaven and earth, I think is pretty significantly connected to Paul's teaching on what happens at the judgment seat related to our acts, our deeds, our words are tested by fire and certain things remain and certain things don't remain. It's the same cleansing fire with the same purpose, that there could be fellowship and dwelling God and man, okay? But now it's happening in the physical realm on the earth, not just to the body and and to the person standing before the Lord uh, at the judgment seat. Okay, well, uh, look here, just another verse that says it about this new home, or new, rather new heaven and new earth. So heaven as well. Revelation 21.1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. There's that verse about the sea. This is Peter in 2 Peter 3 and the apostle John in Revelation 21, <coughs> both saying... A new heaven and a new earth. Something about the old heaven and the old earth are going to receive a refining that is going to wind up changing some aspect of what it looks like and feels like. I just imagine heaven already awesome. And yet God says, I'm going to bring the same cleansing fire to heaven as I'm going to bring to earth. All right. So what's the demanded response? This is a big deal. I mean, this is a really intriguing, powerful narrative. You just think about, I mean, here's just a question to start to ask yourself. How bad off is man? How bad is sin, the ramifications of the garden? How bad is it that after a thousand years of Jesus ruling the planet, that's not enough? And there has to be cleansing fire. Like what... (laughs) We have an epidemic that we cannot resolve. I mean, this is really intense. And, and the response from heaven would be, exactly. Like, the redemptive plan requires all of this. And it's all in Christ. I mean, it's, it's Jesus that's, that's ushering in the millennial kingdom. It's Jesus that's ruling and reigning. It's Jesus in perfect partnership with the Father that's inviting the Father to the earth. And the Father says, this is a little you know, ad-lib, this is not a written verse that you can read, but I think the, sent, the sentiment is there. The Father's response would be, oh son, I'm coming, I can't wait to come, but when I come, I come as me. And I'm coming with holy refining fire, even to the earth that you have been steward over this last thousand years. 
I'm coming with fire. It's like, whoa, so intense. All right. Top of page five. This is this is a a a powerful <clears throat> repetition. Second Peter three ten, Peter says, "The day of the Lord will come like a thief." Well, no, he says, "But, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief." He's just been teaching on all this stuff, and he's like, "Even after me warning you, there still will be people that the day of the Lord will come like a thief to them." Peter is directly quoting Jesus, and he's directly quoting Paul. Some sessions ago, we read the verse where Paul said this exact same thing in his end-time teaching, and he's quoting Jesus, who Jesus said, but if the, if the, uh, the, the end times will be like a man whose house is being broken into, he said, but if the man knew at what time that the, the person was going to break in, he would not have allowed himself to be broken into. He said, so it is with you. <coughs> Don't let the end times catch you like a thief in the night. Peter, I'm sorry, Paul taught that same thing. That was one of those phrases that must have made it into the church as like lore, part of like the normal thing that people, you know, thief in the night, don't be a thief in the night. It must have caught enough traction because both Paul and Peter both include it in their teachings and they're quoting Jesus. So it's not a different end time teaching. It's not a different message. It's the same message. Well, what was that same message? Do not be deceived. Pay attention. If you watch the signs which are in the Bible and pay attention to what has been told, you will be ready and that day will not spring on you like a thief in the night, but it absolutely will spring on all of those who are not ready, who are not looking, who are not paying attention, <clears throat> who for whatever reason are, are unable or, or have not given themselves to understand yet what is transpiring. But it is God's desire, just like it's God's desire that none would perish, it's God's desire that none of the church would be caught like a thief in the night related to this subject. But here it is. Peter goes, you just, you almost imagine he like when he's writing the letter, He's kind of like intense, intense, kind of excited face while he's writing. And then he gets to this part and he goes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like, I know there's still going to be people that are not going to listen to this. That's what the message is of the Lord will come like a thief. That's The message is warning. Okay? So Jesus, Paul, and Peter all use that same phrase. And they're charged to live holy. That's... That's uh, Peter wrapping up the letter here, and he goes, or, or wrapping up this chapter, since everything will be destroyed in this way. He says, have you been paying attention to the narrative I just painted? It is so intense. God treats unrighteousness with great severity. God is really serious about this whole plan. He is really big and mighty, and he is going to act in ways that will be perceived as him being really big and really mighty. I mean, Nothing says God is God like the flood. It is the most obvious thing to all of creation. And nothing will say God is God like the cleansing after. It's going to be another one of those major moments. He says, since this is how it is, what kind of people ought you to be? Oh my gosh. You ought to live holy and godly lives in light of of this reality. 
And that was his exhortation. Remember from the beginning, he said, the reason I write these letters to you is I'm trying to stimulate you into holy living. And now he's following it up. He's going, I'm trying to stimulate you into holy living. A couple verses later, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. I just want to throw in just a little interpretive detail here. Spotless and blameless has, a, has everything to do with right and wrong. At peace with him has a whole lot to do with following his leading, following his instruction. Why would it be a different thing? It's a different thing. It's not the other two things. It's a different thing. Have you ever had that? You might be, you know, you didn't sin today in any sort of significant way with the exception of you knew the Lord was trying to get you to do something you didn't want to do and you told him no and you didn't do it. You are no longer living at peace with him. So listen, you need to live at peace with the Holy Spirit, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Live righteous, live instructed, follow the nudges of God. He said, this is what you ought to do. In light of this story, in light of this teaching out of 2 Peter chapter 3, this is what your life pursuit ought to be. Godliness, holy living, and following the leadership of the Holy Spirit wherever God leads you. And then this unbelievable reality as we wrap up. Worship leader, you can come on up. I just think about this, and I think people have dismissed this because it's, it's such a big idea. It is such an unbelievable thing. Let me stop for a second. The fact that God likes people is absurd. It's fact, but it's crazy. <laughs> like it's, it is an absolutely shocking reality. God, big, perfect holy, likes little ants that mess with each other. It's like, you are amazing. The fact that you like people is an outstanding revelation. I can't believe it. I mean, I believe it, but my gosh, that's, it says so much about who he is, and it says so much about us and our value to him. It, there are some shocking realities. This isn't up there with that, but this is of the more shocking realities that I can think of. And so it's so shocking, many dismiss it as an impossibility because it just seems like that's just crazy. Here's what it says. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. To speed its coming means human activity that makes Jesus come back faster. That is, it's such a crazy idea that it's just normally dismissed. It's thought of as, how could it possibly be that God would put into the hands of humanity any level, I mean 1%, how could God allow the timing of the most important event in human history? Because we recognize the first coming is unto the second coming, right? We do understand that. It's, it's all part of the same reality. He had to come the first time in order to accomplish the purposes of the cross and redemption so he could come the second time. Our gospel isn't the gospel if Jesus doesn't come back. Like He's got to come back. That is the story. The most intense moment, the most important moment in the history of the earth, the second coming of Christ where he becomes king on earth and everything is put under his feet 
and the bride of Christ takes her seat at his side. This is the craziest, biggest thing. The fact that it could be 1%, the timing of that be in our hands is a crazy idea. And it's in the Bible. There are things we can do to hasten the day of the Lord. And consequently, things we can do or neglect that don't hasten the day of the Lord. I'm just going to give you three that jump out to me. There might be a longer list. The three that jump out to me are intercession, the Great Commission, and the bride making herself ready. And I gave you the verses there. But (laughs) Peter writes this. He writes it so nonchalantly, you know he must have talked to him about it before. I mean, this is a really big idea. I can't think of too many things that are bigger of a deal than this. And he says it in passing like, you know, get to hastening. Like, get the Lord to come back faster. As you look forward to the day of the Lord and you do things to speed its coming, you intentionally engage in things that make that day happen faster. And again, I look at it and I go, intercession, and there's a lot to be said there. But as a topic, the Great Commission, I gave you the verse there, Matthew 24, the end will not come, the second coming will not come by the mouth of Jesus until every tribe, language, and tongue has heard the gospel. Until they have heard this gospel is what Jesus said. The gospel of the kingdom. So it won't happen. So, So that means human activity can either partner with that purpose or just kind of let it happen however we want. We can hasten. And then lastly, the bride has made herself ready. Revelation 19. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. We've got to believe. We're still choking on the fact of the end times right now. The church at large, we're still choking on, do we believe in an end times? Do we believe it's coming? Do we... I mean, we got to get way past that to the point where we're all settled on that detail. And now we're working towards Revelation 19. The bride in the last generation is making herself ready on purpose with understanding for the second coming of Christ. We're making ourselves ready for the wedding day. Think about all that goes into preparation for a wedding. There's a lot of work. It doesn't just magically happen. Ask any gal that's gotten married. She'll tell you. It doesn't just happen. There's a ton of preparation. The church must make herself ready. And Jesus is not coming back until that's happened. So what does it look like for us to make ourselves ready? There's there's a lot of powerful stuff in these chapters that we read about the end times. There's a tremendous amount of revelation about how we're to live and posture our hearts, where we're to draw our strength from. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you.